All right, well, if you can grab your seats and your Bibles, um, grab them and turn to Acts chapter 16. We are launching into the book of Philippians this morning, and uh, we're going to do that by way of Acts chapter 16, because Acts chapter 16 is the record for us of what happened when Luke and Paul and Timothy and Silas went to Philippi, and even the reasons why they went to Philippi. So um, Paul in Philippians, verses 1 to 6, is going to make reference to be the, the beginning days of their partnership in the gospel and what took place in those first moments and how those first moments was the start of something that has been continuing on. And so it makes a lot of sense for us to go to the beginning, to go to where the start happened, and, and just take a, a peek at some of the details. Now, uh, if we're not careful, we're going to spend about 30 minutes in Acts 16 and have virtually no time in Philippians 1. So we're going to try to not do that and instead fly through Acts 16 and spend a little bit more time in Philippians chapter 1. So, Lord willing, you got the text that I sent out on Friday telling you how you were able to prepare for this morning. If you did not get that text, it's because you're not signed up to receive those texts. So on the back of your bulletin, there is a phone number and a code. If you text that code to that phone number, you will get signed up to do so and to receive those texts. I probably legally have to say standard data and messaging rates apply. I don't know if I have to do that, but that's just what you hear every time anybody says sign up for text messaging. Um, but that's a way that we communicate. Uh, we don't use it a ton. Uh, you're not going to get eight or nine text messages a day. I'm not even sure we average once a week all the time. Um, but I am going to try and give you ways to prepare, give you reminders for the memory verse for the upcoming Sunday. So this morning was Philippians 1.6. And hopefully, Lord willing, you grabbed somebody today and you said your verse to them. And uh, they rejoiced with you in that. And... Uh, I had the opportunity to do so with Tyler Martin. We FaceTimed Justin Walter because he wasn't here this morning. The three of us decided we're going to do that together. And uh, so we got together and we grabbed our phones and we got on FaceTime. And we were doing that with each other. Um, and it was good and a lot of fun. Uh, and just kind of a neat way to encourage one another in and with God's word as we begin this series. So uh, before we go any further, let's go before the Lord. And then we'll hop into Acts 16, and then we'll work our way on to Philippians chapter 1. So would you pray with me? Father God, we, we just come before you and ask that you would come and meet with us in your word. God, we believe that you have spoken, and it is in our best interest to draw near and listen. God, it's been, it's been rightly said that when the Bible speaks, you speak. And God, that's what we need. We need to hear from you. And God, these people sitting before me, they, they, don't, they don't need anything from Tim. 
They need things from you. And so, God, we pray that you would speak and you would do so clearly and that we would understand and there would be clarity in my words and there would be accuracy and they, they would be true and right and in accord with what you have said. God, I pray that you'd meet with us in a special way this morning, that you would come and encourage us, certainly collectively as a whole, but God, would you meet with each one of us individually and bring encouragement in the exact way that it is needed? God, would you do that in, in regards to exhortation? Would you, would you challenge us, certainly as, as a whole, but individually in the exact way each of us need it? God, and you tell us your word equips. It makes us fully equipped for every good work. So God, we pray that you would come and use your word to equip us for what you have for us. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, if you've got Acts chapter 16, as I said, that is the record of Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy getting to Philippi. And what we're going to see in Acts chapter 16, in the first few verses, Paul picks up Timothy. And he does so in a town called Lystra. And he rolls into town with Silas and Luke. They find Timothy there. Timothy is not fully Jewish. He's not fully Gentile. He's half and half. And we're told that. But Timothy loved Jesus Christ. His mother and grandmother, I believe it's Lois and Eunice, taught him the gospel, taught him about Christ. He placed his faith and trust in Christ, and he was well spoken of by the other brothers and sisters in the believing community there in Lystra. So Paul's like, hey, Timothy, you got to join us, and Timothy joins them. And I just want to just highlight, because we camped on this a few weeks ago. This is not going to be a major point, but it is a very accurate and true point in the text that all of Acts chapter 16, as well as much of the entire book of Acts, is about the gospel going forth to Gentile people. And here you have Timothy as a half-Jewish, half-Gentile individual who is saved by the gospel, equipped and called to join Paul and Silas to be a part of gospel work. And so again, we see here highlighted, as we'll even see in the lives of the Philippians that are converted and given a purpose, that the gospel's not for one race. It's for all races for all ethnicities, it's for all languages, it's for all tongues and tribes and peoples, and we have this on display in this text. So then what takes place in the next few verses of Acts chapter 16 is that Paul wanted to go into Asia, and Luke records for us the names of some towns that I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce, so we're just going to say Asia, but the Holy Spirit blocked him and wouldn't allow him to do that. And so he then decided he was going to go to a different part. And we're told that the Spirit of Jesus Christ would not let him go. And so Paul has a dream. In that dream, a man from Macedonia is there asking for help. Paul concludes that the Lord blocked him from going to Asia so that he would go into Europe and take the gospel there. And he says, we got to go to Macedonia. we got to go there. So they set sail for the Neapolis. 
It was the port city in Macedonia. From there, they traveled about eight miles to the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi was not the capital city in Macedonia, but it was the leading city in Macedonia. It's very interesting how some of that played out. And what happened, if you go back several hundred years in history, there was, there was a battle, there was a conquering, there was a settling, and Philippi became a Roman colony. And so all of the rights, privileges, and statuses that would come from being a Roman citizen living in Rome were afforded to those there living in Philippi. Philippi also sat at a crossroads of major economic trade. Literally, there was two roads that crossed in Philippi where major economic trade took place. So it wasn't the capital city of Macedonia, but it was a leading city and it was a Roman colony. And there's significance in that. It was said by one uh, scholar and commentator I was reading this past week in, in prep that if you had been to Rome and then traveled and went to Philippi, you would more than likely say, it feels like I'm still in Rome. Because there was that much similarity. It said that the city was laid out similarly to Rome. That its architecture was similar. That its money, its coins, and its currency had Roman inscriptions. The citizens of Philippi spoke Latin the language of Rome, its citizens dressed like Romans. So there is significance there. And as we get into Philippians itself, and Paul is addressing these people, there is tremendous significance because Roman citizenship was a prized item. If you were a Roman citizen, that was a big deal, especially living in a Roman colony. And he's going to address some of those things in his actual letter. But Paul decides to go to Philippi. Not the capital city of Macedonia, but the leading city of Macedonia. And as he would do, he on the Sabbath day would go out and try to find people to evangelize to. In many other cities, that looked like him finding a synagogue and going and preaching the gospel from the Old Testament to those gathered in the synagogue. But what he was unable to find in Philippi was a synagogue. It's interesting. Jewish law, not Old Testament law, but what the rabbis did in interpreting and and laying down guidelines and rules and regulations outside of the Old Testament had said that you could not have a synagogue in a city unless there was 10 Jewish men able to gather. And so the fact that there is absolutely no synagogue mentioned in Philippi, and Paul did not go to a synagogue, and he did not actually even find a group of men gathering for prayer, would lead, really by implication, us to believe that the the Jewish presence in Philippi was very, very limited, if even existent. And so down by the river, Paul finds a bunch of women praying. One of those women is the name... And goes by the name of Lydia. And she was a big deal in the economy. She traded textiles and fabrics. She was a big enough deal, probably successful enough, that she was able to have a household. There was people that worked for her, that 
lived for, with her, that she provided for. And here she is gathered with a group of women down by the river. They are praying. We're told that she is a worshiper of God. We have no idea exactly if she was a Jewish proselyte who had heard about the Old Testament God and thought, I, I, need, to, I need to worship this God. However, she, wherever she was before, Paul shared with her the gospel. And we're told that the Lord opened her heart. And in verse 14, we are given that specific phrase. And she placed her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And immediately after, she was baptized. And her whole household as well. And we're going to see the same thing take place in regards to what happens with the Philippian jailer. He gets saved. Immediately he gets baptized and his household as well. And I just want to highlight here that in the book of Acts, there is virtually no chronological time between salvation and baptism. You can go to Acts chapter 8, where it's the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip meets him. He's in his chariot. Hears the gospel, places his faith and trust in Jesus, says, hey, there's water. Let's get in. You can go to Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people place their faith and trust in Jesus. They ask Peter, what do we do? Peter says, repent, believe, get baptized. Because baptism was and is an external public declaration of an internal reality. Baptism was not the cause of these individuals' salvation. It didn't start anything, but it was a public declaration that I'm changed. Something has happened. I have a new Lord. Now, in the context of those living in Philippi, that, quite frankly, could have carried with it a death sentence. Because to say anyone but Caesar is Lord and Savior was to commit a capital crime. And to be baptized is to declare, I have a new Lord. I have a new Master. His name is Jesus Christ and He has saved me. And so it's not the main point of our text this morning, but it's an opportunity, and I'm going to give you the invitation. If you are an adult and believe and love Jesus Christ, if He has saved you, if you have surrendered your life to Him and He is your Lord, and you've not been baptized, let's have that conversation. Let's get this tank filled, and let's have you take advantage of the opportunity to publicly declare those things. I think sometimes we wait way too long to do that. Now, I also think there's wisdom for those of us that have children to maybe hold them back just a little bit. We're kind of doing that with one of our daughters because I want to make sure that she understands exactly all of that, what that is. But if you're an adult and you would say, I love Jesus, he's my Lord and Savior, and you've not been baptized, it's not a requirement for salvation. You don't lose your salvation if you're never baptized. But the consistent and overwhelming theme throughout the entire New Testament is that those who believe are baptized. And so you got an invitation there to come talk to me. We'll get this thing filled up. Can't guarantee it'll be warm water but it'll be good, and we're going to celebrate and rejoice with you. All right, so then, 
Paul and Silas are in Philippi. They start traveling. They spent some days there. They're around the city, and there's this servant girl, this slave girl owned by people in Philippi, and she brought much gain to her owners by fortune-telling. This is first-century human trafficking. That's all it is. She is a slave. She has no rights. She is being and is the source of profit for those who own her, and it's on the basis of her ability to foretell the future, which is only possible because she has a demon. These owners are wicked people preying on this spiritually possessed slave girl for profit. Well, this girl follows Paul and Silas around. She actually is declaring things that are true of them, perhaps to get them into trouble. Because again, if you said anyone but Caesar was Lord and Savior, that's a capital crime. And this is a Roman colony. Those crimes were in play. She's following them around, declaring things that are true about him. And Paul just says, that's enough. He commands the demon to come out of her. Her owners are so furious that they have lost their source of income. They drag Paul and Silas in front of the magistrates and the town, and they just get everybody excited. Well, the magistrates beat them. They throw them into jail. And I love what Paul does. Here he is in jail, and he just starts preaching and singing. The prisoners are there. They're listening to him. Here's a guy that's been beaten been thrown in jail, and his response is, all right, praise be to God. Let me, let me share the gospel with you. Let me start singing How Great Thou Art. And I mean, he probably didn't have that song, but that'd be a good one. If you ever get beaten and thrown in jail, just start singing How Great Thou Art. You take a page out of Paul's example there, okay? And there's an earthquake. The doors of the jail are open. The jailer starts freaking out because he thinks everybody has escaped. He's now going to commit suicide because he failed his job responsibilities, and Paul holds him back and says, no, 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 we're, we're all still here. And the jailer's response to that is, what, what must I do to be saved? And Paul, again, tells him, you believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So what does the jailer do? He places his faith and trust in Jesus. He tells all of his household, and the same hour of the night, they washed their wounds, The jailer was baptized at once, along with his whole family. And then the next morning comes, and these magistrates decided they didn't want to really have the pot stirred again. So let's get these guys out of town, and let's do so quietly. And Paul says, no, we're not going anywhere, and we're not going quietly, because we are Roman citizens. And this isn't how you treat a Roman citizen. Paul, as a Roman citizen, should have been afforded the rights and the privileges of a Roman citizen. So if there was anybody at that moment, the day prior, that had broken the law, it was the magistrates and those who beat Paul for not abiding by their own law. And the magistrates start getting pretty worried because they broke the law when these other guys didn't. So Paul's... He has them come down and they apologize to him. And then they ask him if he would quietly leave town. And before he leaves town, along with Silas, they return to Lydia's house. And there they encouraged the brothers 
that they saw there. Now, what's really interesting, and this is just kind of a little detail before we hop into the Philippian text. In Acts chapter 16, Luke is the author of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, in the beginning verses, I believe up until about verse Um, well, it's probably about 17 is the last record that we have. Luke is using first-person plural pronouns. So he's saying, like, we went there, and they did this to us. They said this to us. Then it changes. He begins to tell us a story about Paul and Silas. So Luke wasn't thrown in jail. Luke wasn't beaten. But he's telling us the story about what happened. But the pronouns shift because he's not talking about himself anymore. He's talking about them. So it's them, they all of those appropriate words. But those pronouns don't ever change back to us and we until you get to Acts chapter 20, which is when Paul comes back to Philippi eight years later. And it's believed, there's no concrete record of it, but it's believed that Paul left Luke in Philippi to pastor this church of a bunch of Gentile women, a jailer, his family, and whoever else might have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And Luke pastored this church for eight years until Paul came back through Philippi. He ends up picking Luke up, and in Acts chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, those third person, or first person plural pronouns kick right back in, us and we. But the whole second half of 16, 17, 18, and 19 is all they, them, there. Just a little fascinating little tidbit. Because when Paul writes to the church in Philippi some 10 to 12 years later, he writes to a well-established church. And if you want to turn, let's do so now, and let's go to Philippians chapter 1. We are going to see some things even in those first two verses that speak to this church that was well established. And so there Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves is the better translation there of that word. Paul considered himself to be a slave of Jesus Christ. And I realize in our, in, in our nation's history, and even on the grand scheme of the world, that word slave has a lot of struggle and difficulty with it. Because there's been a lot of oppression and abuses and atrocities that have happened underneath that word. And we we don't like it. And you can even see in Acts 16, that slave girl, she was owned by somebody and trafficked for their profit. And it's wickedness. But that word slave is also used to describe the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and those who follow him. That's the primary way the Bible uses. That's one of the primary ways Paul describes his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a slave. He's my master. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. And the idea there is I'm, I, I'm submitted and surrendered to him. And he gets it all. But unlike the wicked earthly masters, he's good and righteous and holy and just, and what he calls us to is for our good, not for his selfish gain and profit. We got to see that. I just want you, I want you to see how Paul recognizes himself and what he recognizes himself to be. He's a slave of 
Jesus Christ. And he writes to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at, or more literally translated, in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And it's that little clause right there at the end, with the overseers and deacons, that leads us to understand that this little church that started with a few women down by the river praying, that then roped in and incorporated a jailer, his family, and maybe some prisoners, who perhaps under the leadership of Luke, over the course of 10 to 12 years, became a church that had a biblical structure of authority where you have these two offices of biblical authority and leadership that is written about expressly elsewhere, just commented in passing. So you have the saints, you have the body there, and you have the overseers, the elders, the pastors, and you have the deacons. And he calls these saints and speaks to something incredibly significant in Verse 1 that I want to draw your attention to. We're going to see this highlighted across other sections of the book. But what he leads off with in this second half of this first verse is significant. He addresses this to all the saints in Christ Jesus. He addresses them and identifies them as those whose spiritual identity is found in Christ Jesus. But he also references and identifies that they have a physical identity. They have a physical location where they're at. And there's incredible significance there. Especially when you understand that on the backdrop of Roman citizens who declared anyone other than Caesar to be Lord were culpable then of a capital crime. Paul says, look, I understand where you live. I understand what's at stake. I'm actually in a Roman jail myself. I know what's at stake here. I know where you're physically located, but I also know where your spiritual identity is located. And your spiritual identity is in Christ Jesus, even though your physical identity is in Philippi. And there's tremendous significance there for you and I because we have a physical location that we live. We live in the United States. We live in Waynesboro or Hagerstown or Blue Ridge Summit. We have an address that even more closely identifies where we are physically located. But our identity, the primary identity that we carry is that of believers who are in Christ Jesus. It's not Americans. It's not Pennsylvanians. It's not Marylanders or however you say that. That was weird, wasn't it? When I was in Indiana, it's not Hoosiers. It's those who are in Christ Jesus. And you just think this colony, who loved nothing more than to prize their Roman citizenship. They, they, they're in Europe, but they're a Roman colony, the greatest kingdom on earth at that point. And he writes to them and says, now there's, there's actually something greater. There's an identity that you bear that is greater than the greatness that Rome has to offer. And you're saints in Christ Jesus. And so he writes to them and says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
these words grace and peace and almost this identical statement that you have there in verse 2 shows up in every one of Paul's letters in the beginning first two, three, sometimes maybe four verses. Sometimes he adds the word mercy, sometimes he leaves out Jesus Christ. It's, it's identical, about seven or eight different letters, it's the exact same phrase, but the words grace and peace shows up all 13 times. Paul sits down to write a letter to a group of individuals, and there's significance there. Because he wants them to have their focus and attention on this idea that they are the recipients of grace. That God has given them something they don't deserve when what they deserve is the exact opposite. And that God has brought peace. Not just the absence of conflict, but a settling. And he wants them to have their focus and attention on not only the grace that they receive from God, but the peace that they have in Him. And so he continues in chapter, and in verse 3 of chapter 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always, and every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So Paul writes to him and says, look, every time I think about you, I pray for you. And every time I pray for you, I rejoice that welling up within me when I think about you and then I spend time praying for you is this emotion and response of joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul's just saying, look, as I think back to those beginning days, 10 to 12 years ago when we met down by the river and then I got beaten and thrown in jail and I was singing and preaching and the jailer thought I was crazy and the prisoners didn't know what was going on but then everybody placed their faith and trust in Jesus and they got baptized. As I think back to those days and all the days that have come since, I'm joyful. And I'm joyful because of your partnership in the gospel. I rejoice when I think about how you have grown in the Lord. And then he gives them this foundational promise in verse 6. And the promise and the statement and the truth is just simply astounding when we just stop and consider and think about it. And it is our memory verse for this week. But before... He gives to any points of instruction, any encouragement, any exhortation. He throws out this promise. And he says this, And I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul gives them this foundational promise And he leads off with, for I am sure. That word sure means I am completely and entirely confident and convinced. So some translations would just say, I'm confident. He's saying, look, you can take this to the bank. This is truth. I am completely convinced and confident that he 
who began a good work in you, that God who started something from that first day, that day down by the river, and then all the other days when people continue to just place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that that he who started this relationship with himself in you will bring it to completion. That word completion means to bring an activity to its successful end. And Paul says, I'm confident in this. This is a bedrock foundational promise that you can stake and build your life upon. So Paul begins this letter with this foundation building declaration that God finishes what he begins. That God finishes what he begins because the work, the good work that began, began because God began it. He who began. Paul doesn't say, I'm I'm confident because you began something. No, he who began. The gospel gives us this unbreakable, unshakable promise that God our Father will complete the good work that he has begun in us. I love how one commentator just summarized this point, that Paul's confidence was not in the Christianity of the Christian, but in the godness of God. Just let that simmer for a minute. Paul's confidence was not in the Christianity of the Christian. It was in the godness of God. And he's saying, look, from start to finish, from the first day until now, until this present day, when you've continued to support and and have fellowship with me, and you're working out this gospel relationship in tangible, practical ways, from then until now, where I sit here and write, but even beyond now, when the day of Jesus comes and all of his enemies are finally subdued and we go and spend eternity with him in the new heavens and new earth, and when, when that day comes... God finishes what he begins. My confidence is not in your ability to stay Christian, but in the godness of the God that we serve. See, in this guarantee of God's unconditional love is what sets you and I free to go follow and serve. Because we're not trying to earn a thing. We're not trying to work for a thing. See, we're free to follow and work and serve without fear that he'll dump us either based on our effort or lack thereof or our failure. And this is the heart of grace. This is being given what you do not deserve when you deserve the complete opposite. This is grace, that God began something. He began a work, and He is going to and guarantees that He will finish what He started. And this stands in contrast with virtually every other aspect of life that we know, because your work is not free in this sense. Your promotion and your pay raises are tied to your job performance. If your job performance gets really bad, you may not have a job anymore. 
school. For those of you still in school, for those of you that have children in school, why do we help them study for spelling tests? Because it's not free. That grade is based on their performance. And it's not necessarily wrong, but it's not grace. And Paul's saying, look, I want to highlight and magnify this grace. This grace that guarantees that this work God began, He will finish. Yesterday, Michigan played their first game of the season. The Michigan football team is based on anything but grace. Their coach makes no bones about it. We have a meritocracy. It's just a fancy word that says you work and earn and then you'll play. And I love it as a fan because it means that they're out actually playing really good football. Because the person, regardless of the scholarship level he's at, whoever puts it all on the field during practice is who's going to see playing time on Saturday. And I love it. But it's not free. It's not grace. And so their starting quarterback yesterday throws two interceptions, back-to-back passes. What happens? Yanked out of the game. I was pleased. That's not grace. It's not freedom. See, this is what Paul's telling us about God's grace. He's telling us, look, this isn't dependent on what you do. This is dependent on who God is. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God will finish what he began. And this is the promise that we stake our lives on. This is the promise, quite frankly, that gives us hope. And it's not up to us. It's all because of what Christ has done. And this promise, this truth, is what sets Christianity in stark contrast than every other religion. Because every other religion says, you got to do so that. And Christianity says, no, we follow and we love and we serve because. And God will finish what he began. Now here's the thing, if this just kind of sounds nice, like if you hear that promise and, and these truths of the gospel and you're like, oh, okay, that's, that's kind of cool. That may be revealing, the Holy Spirit may be revealing in you a heart that doesn't really as its highest priority want to exalt Jesus Christ as the name above every name or rest in his completed work on the cross, or seek him as your greatest treasure. Because this is the lifeblood of Christianity. So how do we know if we've ever done enough? We know because of what Christ has done for us. We know based on his perfect obedience, and then his death, that paid the penalty for my disobedience. This is the beauty and the heart of the gospel. And this is where Paul begins this letter. 
And he's going to tell them next week. Well, it wasn't next week for them, but he's going to tell them in verses 7, 8, and 9. He's going to be like, I want you guys to do some things. I want you to abound in some things. I want you to grow in some areas. But I don't want you to forget or get yourselves confused or, or, or maybe misplace how this all works. No, you, you abound in these areas because God is guaranteed that what he began, he is going to finish. So we can say with the author of Hebrews, let us throw off every sin and weight that entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we do so because God is guaranteed that he will finish what he begins. And so our hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's where we live. That's where our hope is. That's where the beauty of the gospel lands. That's the foundation that Paul wants us to build and stake our lives upon.